The downfall of cider in this country is a multi-pronged sword, with reasons ranging from temperance evangelists to federal legislation to immigration to basic harvest timing. It's not just one chop of the axe. We have seen a rise, a fall, a new rise of cider in the U.S. And for this episode, I finish out the story. Let's go. Welcome to Courage and Other Sea Words. I'm your host, Jen Root Martell, and thanks so much for joining me today. We're getting some pretty beautiful weather here in Northern California, so I hope that wherever you are, you're also enjoying some sunshine. We just finished up Bay Area Beer Week, which was super fun. Much condensed this year, obviously, since COVID is still upon us. And though we didn't go asking for events, we were included in a few locals' nights at different bars in SF and on the peninsula. And we just really, really appreciate that. It was nice to be out and about again, uh, connecting with the community and industry friends who, man, haven't seen for probably two years. It felt very weird. We even heard of a couple of new breweries popping up in the area, which is really exciting. It's impressive that they were able to get some traction during a pandemic. And sometimes you do, you just, you got to keep to the plan, even if the world is falling apart. And I hope the best for those starting out right now. It's always a great time to bring attention to the craft alcohol community, even though I know it says Beer Week. A lot of local bars and restaurants really do try to, to showcase kind of all of the different brands in the area. And we really, that's just so great. We really appreciate that and being part of that. And since we weren't hosting any events this year, we also did a fun promotion at the Tap Room where we put together a recommended snake bite menu. And now I know for the purists, a snake bite is part lager, part cider. But we did have a fun kind of experiment of making all combinations of the three beers that we have and the five ciders on tap. Some definitely turned out better than others. And the menu is a nice cross-section of all of our offerings. So if you're in the area and swinging by, the menu might not be as obvious anymore. But go ahead and ask the staff for some suggestions, and they'll be happy to make you one. There's some pretty funny combinations that turned out so well. So moving on, I hope you enjoyed the last episode as I jumped headfirst into a history lesson. It was a lot of fun putting it together, and I'm sure it could have been longer and more detailed, but I didn't really want to push my luck. However, I feel like we have to finish the story since we were really just getting to the sad part. But the end is happy, so there's light at the end of the tunnel at least. And just to state again, for this episode, and most episodes, when I say cider, I'm referring to the alcoholic version of the drink. This episode will explain why I have to make that distinction in this country, but it comes down to the fact that we are talking about the history of the alcoholic beverage version in this country, and I don't have the energy to say hard apple cider every time. Sorry, not sorry. I also want to make perfectly clear that though I will intersect my own voice every now and then, I am deferring to the knowledge and research of others who have put in their time to write this narrative. I had to pull from many sources to get the full account of these two episodes, and there was a lot of cutting and pasting. But I have referenced all of my sources in the show notes, and I thank them wholeheartedly for doing the work so that I can piece it all together in my own way. So where were we? We left off, I believe, at the election of 1840 and William Henry Harrison's log cabin and hard cider campaign that sent him into the White House. Well, for a month at least. However, 
The warning signs for the downfall of cider in this country were already building. Temperance reformers had been working to eradicate cider orchards since really the late 1820s, and they actually threatened to abandon the party for promoting alcohol consumption. Intemperance has become the badge of a political party, harumphed the New York Evangelist paper. Yes, intelligent men, men who have enjoyed the benefits of Christian teachings and who live in a land of gospel light, are called upon to exhibit their enthusiasm for political strife by drinking hard cider, made harder by hard brandy, for the glory of General Harrison. The evangelists predicted that more than 10,000 men will be made drunkards in one year by this hard cider enthusiasm. It was probably an understatement, actually. But a writer in another New York paper declared it a burning shame that the flag of my country waves over such mockery and abomination as though her stars and stripes were not insulted by being associated with such iniquity. Issued a warning to the Harrison campaign for sure. And should those grog-dispensing log cabins be opened on Sunday, either day or night, the Whigs would lose the votes of so many temperance men that would negate the effect of this pandering. The campaign may well have proved to be a curse for hard cider anyway. Instead of prohibition being the end-all, be-all death of cider in the U.S., as I sort of always thought, the answer seems to be more nuanced, with several factors happening pretty much in parallel or compounding on each other, to ensure cider's eventual demise as drink choice number one in this country. So let's break it down. Firstly, as the economy improved after 1843, nostalgia for the, quote, olden days quickly faded. Young people began abandoning farm life in droves. The orchards that did remain were unorganized, small batch producers who struggled to keep up with the industrializing economy. Farmers begin to realize that maybe they don't want to be part of this trade. They don't want to make cider. You get the sense that there are even a limited number of temperance farmers who replant their entire orchards to non-cider fruit, fruit to eat or to bake with. It's this practice that likely gave rise to the myth of widespread orchard destruction during Prohibition. That also was apparently just a legend where mobs of people were let loose on orchards during Prohibition in order to physically wipe out the presence of the fruit though some did feel the need to replace the trees with other crops on their own land. And then something that's telling, in 1898, the federal government declared cider no longer taxed unless it's been fortified into something like a brandy, suggesting so little was being produced that it wasn't even worth taxing. As a telling statistic to back this up, by the time Prohibition was enacted in 1919, the production of cider in the U.S. had slipped to only 13 million gallons, down from 55 million gallons in 1899, just 20 years before. So production in general was dropping dramatically, with or without temperance. Secondly, the taste for hard cider continued into the 19th century in pockets of the East Coast, but immigration from Central and Eastern Europe was increasing, and with it brought changing tastes that veered more towards lager or light beer that was the traditional staple back home in Europe. Fields of barley, wheat, and corn sprouted up across the landscape, the primary ingredients of whiskey and beer. Beer culture started taking shape and was able to outcompete the seasonal restrictions placed on cider, as it does depend on the single harvest of apples each year. The ease of making beer and the increase in beer options for drinking, especially in the larger cities that were seeing such influxes of new immigrants, brought a slow change in consumption culture that basically sidelined cider. 
also in the push west. Many who were looking to grow crops for money were able to invest in that same barley, wheat, and rye that only take a year for their first harvest, whereas apple trees, even small dwarf trees, take a minimum of three to five years to grow fruit. Larger trees can take up to 10 years before they begin producing apples, which is a little long to wait if you're looking for a quick return on investment from your land. So next, we have to, of course, talk about temperance. I've mentioned it a little with the Harrison campaign and the strong response to his alcohol-induced marketing strategy from some, but it was a force to be reckoned with at the start of the 19th century. Pre-Revolutionary War, alcohol was regarded as a necessary part of the American diet for both practical and social reasons. As I said in the first episode, water supplies were often polluted, milk was not always available, and coffee and tea were expensive. There's also evidence that social constructs of the time made it impolite for people, particularly men, to refuse alcohol. Drunkenness was not a problem because people would only drink small amounts of alcohol throughout the day. However, post-independence, there was a whole new world of freedom of choice. That and just dealing with the general trauma brought on by a great war At the turn of the 19th century, overindulgence and subsequent intoxication became problems that were starting to lead to even the disintegration of the family at home. The temperance movement in the United States began, therefore, at a national level in the 1820s, having been popularized by evangelical temperance reformers and among the middle classes. There was a concentration on At that point, at the beginning, an advice against hard spirits rather than on abstinence from all alcohol and sort of veered towards more moral reform than like the legal measures against alcohol that would come later. However, as we move farther into the century, a response formed to rising social problems in urbanized areas, a stricter form of temperance emerged called teetotalism, which promoted the complete abstinence from all alcoholic beverages. This time, unfortunately, including wine and beer, not just ardent spirits. People were now instructed to only drink pure water, and the teetotalists were known as the Pure Water Army. Also, with the evangelical Protestant religious revival of the 1820s and 1830s, if you want to get real detailed about it, it, that was called the Second Great Awakening, and social movements began aiming for a perfect society. This included temperance and also abolitionism, which is a good thing. The awakening brought with it an optimism about moral reform achieved through volunteer organizations. And although the temperance movement was non-sectarian in principle, the movement did consist mostly of churchgoers. And unfortunately for Slider, The Protestant population and their ancestors were the ones who were the big cider drinkers over the years versus the Catholic Irish who drank mainly beer and whiskey and then Central Europeans who preferred beer as well. I also want to bring attention to the fact that temperance during this time was not a purely American movement. Societies were popping up in other British colonies like Australia and New Zealand. Similar in cultural roots, but obviously geographically very different. There was pressure from the First Nations as well in both of these areas who had seen gross injustices and breakdown in family structures over the last many decades that was made possible by the overindulgence of alcohol brought by the settlers. And as the 1800s progressed, the cry of temperance movement seemed to grow steadily. 
mainly in churches, which then spread out into hotels, restaurants, free lunch services, and public events. But the Civil War had a noticeable impact on increasing the cry for temperance and then later prohibition in the U.S. During the Civil War, women took control of the farms and businesses as their fathers, husbands, and brothers went off to fight. Many also significantly aided in a war effort for the first time in American history. When everyone took return from the war, the men expected their wives to go back to their old roles and give up their independence. In addition, the men unfortunately came back different. They suffered what we know as PTSD, but at the time, nobody knew what that was. And many men came back very violent, and they tried to forget what they had seen, which was horrors of war, by drinking more hard cider and other alcohol that was sitting around. And unfortunately, the drinking then also helped the PTSD fuel the domestic violence at home. So after being independent during the Civil War, often for the first time in their lives, the women whose husbands came back realized they had the power to change their circumstances. They rekindled the temperance movement to end drinking. They held rallies and protests. They chanted sayings like, No lips that touch alcohol shall touch mine. And scholars have estimated that by 1900, one in 10 Americans had signed a pledge to abstain from drinking as the temperance movement became the most well-organized lobby group of the time. International conferences were held in which temperance advocacy methods and policies were discussed. And by the turn of that century, temperance societies became commonplace in the U.S. So by the time Prohibition made the official swing of the axe in 1920, Cider was already on the chopping block. And I can't take credit for that one, but it's just so good I had to use it. The alcohol industry was curtailed by a succession of state legislatures and finally ended nationwide under the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was ratified in 1919 and passed with a 68% supermajority in the House of Representatives and 76% support in the Senate as well as ratification by 46 out of 48 states, thanks to all of the enthusiastic lobbying done by the temperance movement. Enabling legislation, known as the Volstead Act, set down the rules for enforcing the federal ban and defied the types of alcoholic beverages that were prohibited. Apple growers, who literally saw their future going up in flames, invented phrases like, an apple a day keeps the doctor away to encourage people to start eating their apples. Sweeter apples, also more suitable for eating, were developed and planted. And fun fact for cider, under that Volstead Act, it was illegal to produce cider. But you could still ferment it. You had to get a license to produce cider, but you'd have to finish by fermenting that cider into vinegar. The Act also pointed out that you can't have a liquid that's more than 0.5% ABV. Suffice it to say that farmers were still very confused. For those of you who have fermented cider at home, you know that pressed apple juice with a lot of sugar would reach 0.5% alcohol within two or three days, maybe even one fermented. Farmers across the country were worried they'd end up in jail no matter how hard they tried to follow the rules. So in response to this continued confusion, the government issued what's called a prohibition mimeograph which officially prohibited cider production. But less than a year later, in October 1920, the government reversed course with a second mimeograph. This one says, interestingly, that you can make cider at home, 
and you can make up to 200 gallons a year for personal consumption. You can't sell it or transport it, but you can make it. And within a year of coming into effect, cider production was legalized under prohibition. And after years of decline in popularity, it's once again something that is part of people's lives, just, of course, within the confines of their own homes. And I do actually love that for our report to our federal regulatory agency, we still have up to 100 gallons of cider that we can report as personal consumption that is non-taxable. So thank you, Prohibition. We appreciate that. However, sales in a commercial market plummeted, never to recover, even after the end of Prohibition. It turns out that while cider might be easy to make, orchards are a painstaking art, as many of you know. (laughs) A newly planted apple tree takes three to five years to produce fruit, as I just mentioned. Seeds once strewn freehand across the country have been replaced with types better suited for pies or virtuous non-alcoholic juice. Undoing decades of careful cultivation of the acidic, tough varieties that make just the best cider. Even the name of that non-alcoholic juice was rebranded as cider or sweet cider, diluting the term and making it more approachable for families and children. It is only in recent years that interest has been revived in hard cider, Surviving heirloom varieties that would have had a role in the old orchards have been carefully cataloged and others have been put up for sale at city's farmer's markets, as well as sold by the bushel to businesses wanting to make their own labels. On the East Coast, many have been taking cuttings of trees planted 100 years ago, blending them experimentally into new ferments with California and the Great Lakes states following suit. A third of commercial cideries in the country boast their own estate orchards as they would say it in the Royan world. So Americans are finally rediscovering their taste for great, soft, and hard cider. Beginning in the 1980s, craft cider making has piggybacked on both the microbrewery and locavore food movement. I generally say that the cider industry in this country is about 10 years or so behind our craft beer cousins, learning from their example about how to build a community taproom and showcase the local and regional ingredients in our beverages. Larger beer brewing companies, whose profits have been suffering for years due to the loss of market share to craft beer and the change in public opinion as to the quality of the product people are consuming, they've even started buying cider companies. Another variable for cider's continued rise is that the current U.S. beer market is in a state of flux. And that's according to Chris Lombardo, who's the senior analyst at New York-based Ibis World, Though the craft beer boom has normalized, relatively, breweries now contend with customers that increasingly demand a diverse array of alcoholic beverages, not just the traditional culprits like wine or spirits. Let's think spiked seltzers, spiked teas, ready-to-drink mixed drinks, cider, etc. Beer is still the largest alcoholic beverage segment in the United States, for sure, but its years of complete domination do seem to be dwindling. As you've heard me complain in the last few years, the healthy alcohols, quote, quote, whatever the fuck that means, seltzers and kombuchas have definitely taken a toll on cider sales. However, due to the reckoning in the beer world, and happy news for those of us fermenting apples for a living, the North American cider market is actually projected to grow at a rate of about 10% through 2026 and reach a valuation of about $4.66 billion, according to market data forecast. 
And as consumers continue to seek out alternative and, quote, healthy halo alcoholic beverages, hopefully the cider segment is likely to grow further. Even though today's revival is wonderful and absolutely welcomed, it is only a glimpse of our formerly robust cider culture in this country. Around 13 million cases are sold in the U.S. annually. That was in 2019, before the pandemic. And that's compared to a stunning 22 million in the late 1800s. But considering barely more than 100,000 cases were sold in 1990, it's certainly an improvement. There's also a rising culture of home brewing and home fermenting in this country, which is fantastic to see. As we all know how fraught with apple cider vinegar my history of home fermenting is, I'm excited to hear from those who are experimenting at home and learning all about this awesome category and the apples that make it. Though history has not been kind to cider, it has shaped the beverage and our history as one with historical roots and a classic American soul. We strive every day to continue the traditions of the early settlers, though the apples and taprooms have definitely changed. It is still a great story of the ingenuity and innovation of early immigrants, the determination of those in the temperance movement, and the perseverance of a beverage category that absolutely refuses to be relegated to history. So thank you so much for going with me on this journey today and letting me dive into the history of this country that I love so much. To the U.S. of A. and all those people past, present, and future, I raise a glass of cider. Maybe if we drank a little bit more cider, we'd be a lot more friendly. And that's a wrap. Are you making cider at home and had an, any awesome breakthroughs or hilarious moments? Did I miss something in this history that I need to maybe make sure to add? Please email me at info at othercwords.com. I'd love to hear all about it. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and review to help out this little podcast. Five stars goes a long, long way, and I so appreciate your support. I know it says write a review, and that can be daunting, but Apple isn't asking for a novel. Simple, hey, what's up? Cider is awesome. That would be more than fine. And for more information about me and this podcast, visit us online at othercwords.com. Talk to you soon, and thanks so much for joining me today.